0: Now to the battle royal underway behind the scenes in Australia right now, basically over dramatically competing views as to how best to protect the country should a real Ukraine-style battle break out in our region. Of course, most of us don't easily understand what's on offer in new military hardware or the wisdom of one version over another, though our taxes will pay for it. We also heard Defence Minister Richard Miles this week declaring that defence procurement was a complete mess, his words, not the department itself, but the former government. So, is this politicking or is it accurate? And into this brew comes the AUKUS partnership, announced by the Morrison government. Its first major initiative being an eye-wateringly expensive delivery of nuclear-powered submarines, along with much other technology transfer, but not from the French with whom, you remember, we had a contract for new subs. Now, given the scale of the vital challenges, several commentators have been publicly screaming, frankly, for a much more informed public debate. And we're going to try one now. And I'm pleased to welcome long-term defence analyst and regular guest, Dr Alan DuPont, retired Major General Gus McLaughlin. He had a 37-year career in Army and is now a senior advisor at Bondi Partners. And Sam Roggeveen is the director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program. So, gentlemen, welcome all. Thank you. Thanks, Do we need, can we have a more useful public debate on these matters? Now, Sam Roggeveen, you called for this precisely, so why?
1: Look, I, I certainly welcome uh, a much more open and vibrant public debate. I'm not sure the, the, the public debate is of particularly low quality. I mean, it's it, it's a tendency in, in Australia to bemoan the state of the public debate, but uh, compared to other countries, I'm not convinced it's particularly poor. Uh, perhaps on this particular issue, what concerns me is that there aren't that many dissenting voices. I mean, we, we heard Paul Keating uh, talking about about China and about AUKUS and the US alliance, uh, but there is a pretty strong bias in Australian public debate and, and among our two major parties in favour of ever closer relationships with the United States. And it was it was frankly astonishing to me how quickly uh, opinion swung behind AUKUS after it was announced. I mean, if you'd surveyed Australian uh, defence analysts before the announcement was made in September 2021, then I think you would have found that support for nuclear-powered submarines for the Australian Navy was a fringe position. And yet, within hours of uh, of the announcement, it was the it was the overwhelming consensus.
0: Yeah, interestingly, I didn't quite read it as an overwhelming... I thought there was an enormous amount of confusion that still pertains, but let's see what you think, Alan Dupont.
2: Uh, Yes, on that question, I think it's fair to say that when the previous government made the announcement about AUKUS, there was um, quite a lot of confusion and misunderstandings about what AUKUS meant. Uh, The headline was, of course, nuclear... Uh, powered submarines, not nuclear armed submarines, but it became increasingly clear that the AUKUS arrangement was about much more than that. It was about intensifying strategic cooperation with the United States and the UK across a range of defence relevant technologies. And there's a political dimension to that as well. So I think the the reason why most defence and strategic commentators came down in favour of it, and both sides of politics as well, the mainstream, Parties is that it was seen as a necessary step um, to essentially counter the challenge posed by China in our region. Uh, neither of us alone is sufficiently able to do that, and therefore, the strength in numbers and democracies working together on technical and defence cooperation was seen as generally as a good thing the problem of course is the cost of it all and i'm sure we'll get onto that later but um, the cost is still not clear and uh, it could well be as much as the whole uh, defence investment over the next 10 years again so talking 170 billion dollars or thereabouts so that's the big unknown whether we can actually afford to do all this
0: yeah, I just—I'm actually quoting from Sam because you did say a year on. It's hard to think of a major defence or foreign policy initiative in living memory with such a stark divergence between what the public knows and what the government and its officials know. Um, so, I mean, do you do you agree with that, Gus McLaughlin?
3: Childen, i I agree. The underlying premise that we we have to have a more uh, open discussion about this, and one of the concerns that I've had. Uh, when I was in uniform and since leaving is the the lack of commentary we hear from our senior uniformed officers. Um, under the the previous government in particular, I think there was a, a, a quite a strong control over when we could hear them speak. I've noticed a difference already under the Albanese government and one of the big topics that's open for debate at the moment is whether we procure additional armoured fighting vehicles for the army and it's been pleasing to hear General Simon Stewart, the new chief of the army, out publicly in the last few weeks, um, attempting to give a you know as an understanding of why we need those. I, I think we need to hear from our nations' defence leaders. The sums that Alan just talked about are breathtakingly huge. There's lots of competing priorities, and you know we need to the to the best of our ability understand what that money is being spent on.
0: So should we be having a parliamentary debate? I mean, this is what people were saying uh, earlier this year, so that we all looking on can have a bit of a grasp of these competing ideas and the trade-offs that would be implied. Isn't that a sort of blindingly obvious need, Gus McLaughlin?
3: Yeah, look, children, the, the Defence Procurement Plan, which they call the Integrated Investment Plan, is one of the most complex plans that governments manage, Um, it's a a multi-year, sometimes multi-decade plan across, you know, capability acquisition, staffing levels, uh, sustainment of existing capabilities. The the estate profile defence has, you know, right down to its ICT framework. It's not just the headline dollars, but it's when those dollars occur um, we know that projects are often run over and so therefore spending is shunted around in this kind of plan like a, you know, sometimes it's like elephants, you know, wandering around the field bumping into each other. It's it's an enormously complex plan um, but I do think we need more visibility into it and I think parliamentary inquiries, Senate Estimates of course is meant to be for these purposes but but Senate Estimates has become sort of a bit of parliamentary theatre trying to catch people out. So I don't really know what the forum might be. And of course, defence would argue that if they start to talk in detail about the dollars assigned to each project, that potentially industry can shape their, you know, their bids knowing the, the price envelope. So it's a, it's a complex part of governing the country. I'm, I'm a proud army officer, but I think we, we need to debate the acquisition of these armoured fighting vehicles against other priorities. I do believe, that the submarine is probably the capability that Australia might have that would genuinely give us weight in, in the region because we can move up into strategic choke points that influence um, you know, countries like China, which are still major resource importers.
0: Um, Alan DuPont, um, is the minister right when he declares defence procurement a complete mess?
2: Yes, I think he is right. Uh, The question is, who's responsible? (laughs) I think that's where the debate's taking place. But um, I I think it is a mess in the sense that the business model used by defence to acquire uh, the various systems we need for a defence force is overly bureaucratic, it's designed for a peacetime uh, era where you can at leisure develop uh, systems and programs over 10, 20 years. Uh, And when you get into a situation that we're really contemplating the possibility of Australia being involved in a conflict, let's hope it doesn't happen, then you've got to have a change in mindset to a more innovative can-do, what can we do quickly as Ukraine is doing, for example, uh, at the moment. So, so, that mindset issue is part of the problem. There's also structural issues. I just don't believe our defence industry are brought into the process early enough um, to actually help develop the outcomes that we need for the Defence Force. And the other point I would make is about um, public-private partnerships. Mm. It's just about liberating private sector money to go into infrastructure that is dual-purpose infrastructure that can be used for commercial uh, purposes as well as defence, that sort of money is is big bucks. And superannuation funds have a lot of money that could be invested in infrastructure, uh, but it has to have price signals from the government and a uh, a preparedness for the government to take some of the risk. Countries that have done it successfully, like uh, the United States and, and more comparable with us, say, South Korea, have had much greater government involvement and private sector involvement in developing their defence industries. And we don't have that and we need to have it.
0: And in fact, I think you, you implied we've been going backwards. We've, we've deteriorated in our capacity
2: I think we have. If you look back, I mean, 20, 30 years ago when we were building <clears throat> the ANSAC-class frigates, for example, we had quite a lot, a very high percentage of Australian industry participation. I think it was around about 80%. Um, we were supposed to be building a viable ship uh, shipbuilding industry in Australia, and that now has gone off the rails a bit. And so we have not been able to sustain a defence industry production capability and base in this country, that will stop us having to buy stuff from overseas all the time. And although critics will say, yes, well, we have to pay a premium for an Australia because it's so much more expensive to build here. Well, it's always going to be the case until you get to a critical threshold where you build up your capabilities to such a point where you can be competitive globally. And that t- we're talking here about 10 to 20 year investment in defence industry. But that's what we need to do.
0: Oh, this is not just an Australian problem either, I understand. this is, And this goes to the AUKUS discussion, because the UK and the US, our two sort of main allies, they're also stretched, completely stretched and po- you know possibly beyond what they can do to help us. So, this, I mean, this is where the sort of whole Putin behaviour has shocked everybody rigid, really, is.
2: It's a really important point that this is a problem for the Western democracies across the board, including the United States. We've dropped the ball on our defence industry capabilities. We just don't build things in sufficient numbers quickly enough uh, whereas the autocracies have actually spent a lot of time thinking about this and getting it right. And the example I gave that China can produce, for example, around about 17 uh, warships a year, which is essentially the size of the Australian Navy, uh, and we, we are pushed to produce uh, a couple of ships. It's just uh, it's, it's not a contest at the moment, so we've got to do something about it, not just in Australia, but across uh, our, our allies, allies as well.
0: Sam, were you trying to come in there? I'll, I'll, no, forgive me. I think that was Gus. Oh, Gus, yeah. go ahead, Gus.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, look, I just give. I'm, I'm in violent agreement with Alan. By the way, I just give you an example. Um, in the Ukraine war, in the in the uh, eight months since the invasion, the Western Alliance, in the history of its production of Javelin missiles, has produced about forty thousand of those missiles. Uh, in the first eight months of the war, probably close to half of those ever produced have been fired. And to give you an example, the sort of stockholdings, rough stockholdings that Australia would have held for the last few years, which predominantly for training and some use in Afghanistan, would have been fired in the first two days. So the idea that, you know, perhaps in the past that producing things like smart missiles outside of the US would have cost a job in a particular state and we would have had an agitated congressperson, um, you know, lobbying against Australian production. The paradigm has completely changed now and and the Western Alliance, who rely heavily on things like smart munitions because we want to be precise, you know, application of lethal force, um, we're going to have to get organised and spread that capacity and I think Australia has got to play a part in that.
0: I'll just let listeners know that my guests are Alan Dupont, Gus McLaughlin and Sam Roggeveen. And we're discussing, we're trying to start what some people say we need much more public discussion to make us all a little bit more aware of the decisions being made around our defence. There's a lovely line from um, Alfred Palazzo, Albert Palazzo, who's just done a big piece for uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute about (laughs) a line that I don't think any of us should forget. No one ever gets the war they want or expect. So this is incredibly difficult for Judgments, isn't it, Sam Roggeveen? Um, and the question is, how can we be all drawn into this better and usefully? Are there any models anywhere that you've seen that might help us do so? Huh. Well, first of all, I should just briefly apologise to you, Geraldine, if I
1: misunderstood the intent of your first question. And I certainly don't resile from the comment that you you quoted, but really it was a call for accountability from government rather than for public debate. What I want is for Uh, government to open up a little bit about AUKUS, it strikes me as pretty scandalous that more than a year into this project, we know almost nothing more than we did on the day it was announced. Um, as to your question, the short answer is no, I haven't seen a better way of doing this. But I, I do tend towards the belief that, uh, the view that the ADF should be structured to to defend the Australian continent first, first and foremost. And we've moved away pretty decisively from that model in the last few years. AUKUS is uh, an ideal example of that where, you know, look, the, the single biggest uh, asset, that uh, defence asset that Australia has, is distance. We are far away from the likely sources of threat. Um, it's easy to forget, but Beijing is closer to Berlin than it is to Sydney. Uh, and you know, you have commentators like Jim Molan wrote a book recently, which, which he called "Danger on Our Doorstep." Well, it's not on our doorstep, frankly, and we are not, as some commentators say, a frontline state in a, in the competition with China. We are a long way away. And at the moment, the way we are uh, structuring our defence force or proposing to structure it in the years hence is really designed to compress that distance and bring us closer to the fight when I would argue
0: we should be in the business of exploiting the the distance advantage that we have. I do wa- wonder whether this all this AUKUS discussion... Uh, I know we're doing more than that right now. Does mark a shift from the defence of territorial Australia to some sort of more regional capability, and definitely does mark us as some people have said, almost a sub branch. You know, of the of the American Navy. Others others say, of course, Alan Dupont, that these days, as in a lot of ways, you can't do things just in a sovereign sense on your own. It's too complex. Does all of this really amount to a quite profound shift in the way we see how we defend ourselves?
2: Uh, Geraldine, I would argue, no, it's not. No, it's not, um, had, you say? No, it's not. We've had these debates now for 70 or 80 years about whether to defend, how you best defend Australia, whether you take a sort of narrow geographical approach and say, well, that means just defending the continent of Australia and being concerned about our immediate region, or do you have the capacity to deploy your force in defence of Australian interest, uh, either regionally or globally. We've had this debate backwards and forwards. And my answer to that, that question or that dilemma, if you like, is that we need to be able to do both. And if you structure your force in the right way... You can do both because the point about geography is this, that geography is still important, but it matters less than it did 50, 60 years ago because of technology. That is, missiles now can go tremendous distances. So before we might have been out of a range of missile systems, now we're very much within range, whether it's North Korean or whether it's Chinese or whatever the country you're looking at. So you have to actually find a position where you make geography work for you, make it harder for the other... the the adversaries to get to you, but we shouldn't fool ourselves that because we're a long way from anywhere, we're going to be um, much more defendable or because it it doesn't matter because it's over there and not here. That that argument just doesn't cut ice in a globalised world.
0: Do you agree with that, Gus McLaughlin? Um, because obviously the, the, the trade-offs are just so critical here. Um, to start thinking like that means, well, you know, it may mean a couple of less hospitals or less aged care. I mean, these are very important things for the public to sort of grasp, aren't they?
3: They are. And, and I mean, both Sam and Ellen have, have framed the, the debate. When I was involved in the force structure review planning team in 2016, we were designing what we called a balanced force. And that was the idea that we didn't necessarily know what fight we might get into. And therefore, you put a roughly equal bunch of resources in an Army, Navy, and an Air Force bucket. We had this, you know, the emergence of cyberspace and space, but they were still relatively undeveloped. And that was a sort of traditional um, force structure model. And, and you know, to Alan's point, we've, we've actually been designed to plug into American forces. The Navy is, is almost a perfect plug into the 7th Fleet, uh, you know, out of Hawaii. Our Air Force uh, plugs seamlessly into Pacific Air Force. In fact, our Air Force is the most technologically aligned with the Air Force. And the Army is something of a hybrid force because it's got bits and pieces of technology from a number of countries, but it's been useful to go off and, and do these foreign wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. I think the, the question that's now emerging for defence planners and particularly for the new Albanese government is, uh, you know, can we afford the Swiss Army knife multi-purpose force or do we need to go all in and design a force that's predominantly about um, protecting Australia's interests at home, and, and obviously the, the, the main topic would be the emergence of a far more belligerent China under Xi Jinping. And you know, Miles has uh, signalled this through his description of a defence force he wants. You know, use the porcupine analogy—really prickly. If you approach us, we can hit you at long range. And so I think the emergence of, you know, long-range precision fires, we need the ability to to defend ourselves from those incoming missiles that – Alan talked about, and frankly, one of my frustrations is that we we simply moved far too slowly. We should have these systems in place now. We, we're watching the Ukraine war. We cannot do many of the things the Ukrainians are doing. We can't hit incoming missiles without with any uh, confidence. Uh, we but can't they but project. they
0: did tool up in eight years. You know, it's very interesting to read the the details. Yeah. They were yeah. way behind, so it can be done.
3: Oh, exactly, and this comes to that defence acquisition approach. Um, you know, my view is we, we're always going to need a relatively cautious uh, track for uh, spending the taxpayers' money on these mega projects, you know, frigate programs, uh, submarine programs, albeit it appears that it's broken down in the case of the submarines, but we definitely need a, a faster, more agile track. You've got to be able to make these decisions more quickly. The Mars uh, missile system we've become aware of, of course, through Ukraine, that was in the 2016 uh white paper and yet we still haven't seen one um arrive on australian soil we 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 insist on overcomplicating. uh we will technically evaluate uh that thing right down to its sort of wheel studs and you know i think at some point you have to take some risk and uh simply buy capable systems off the shelf
0: and from others and don't forget about producing here forget about all those jobs in other words
3: well, no, look, that's a great question. I think we need to have a real strategy around what we what we do make here. And and an example, which, you know, I think was a sensible one, the previous government announced this guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, about a billion and a half dollars, to say we want to add to that global supply chain of smart munitions. Now, unfortunately, nothing uh, yet has, has been done to materialise that, but that's an example where we might choose to add into the system and... Um, if we go ahead with these planned uh, infantry fighting vehicles, Hanwa, the Korean company that's involved in, in is one of the two competing tenderers, has said that they want to make uh, vehicles here in case their own uh, factories come inside, you know, missile and artillery range from North Korea for, or from China. So if we get it right and we're strategic about what we do, we can contribute. I don't think, for example, we will ever do more than paint the number on the conning tower of a, of a nuclear-powered submarine. However,
0: don't you? Mm. Yeah. Or, so, Geraldine, can yeah,
3: I just yeah.
2: uh, just just cut in there? Uh, look, I agree with what Gus has said there about the need for a balanced force. So. It's not an either-or proposition to talk about defending Australia and advancing and protecting our interests more globally or regionally, okay? The force you need to do both is essentially the same. There'll be some tweaking at the edges, and it would be a mistake to think that what the the Albanese government's trying to do here is to develop a new kind of defence force for a specific purpose, i.e. a Taiwan contingency. I don't think that's the point. The point is we need to have a whole range of new capabilities because of the way in which warfare has developed and we're now seeing playing out in Ukraine. Whether you use that for the defense of mainland Australia or protecting protection of our interests further afield, you still need those capabilities it has to be a balanced force, but there will be some compromises that have to be made, and that's that's what, the, uh, what Miles will have to do when the Strategic Defence Review reports yes. in March next year.
0: Well, that whole sort of, you know, don't let the best be the enemy of the good sort of completely dominates my thinking when I look at all this. Um, despite people's best intentions, they end up sort of proposing the very, very best solution, um, which might cost an absolute fortune. I mean, subs are a classic example, and it's very unclear to me. I don't know, Sam Rogabine, you're reading from outside too, whether conventional subs are basically heading for obsolescence or not. And there are completely different views on this.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think conventional submarines are headed for obsolescence. Uh, there are some people who argue that submarines in toto are headed for obsolescence because there's technology just over the horizon that will make it much easier to uh, detect objects underwater. And that is, of course, stealth is, of course, the major asset that, that submarines have, and it's what makes them so lethal. Now, there are sceptics who say, yeah, well, that technology is always just over the horizon, so we'll be waiting forever for that revolution. That step and I think we're betting on uh, actually that, that never happening and a lot of countries are still investing heavily in submarines and are betting that that technology won't ever emerge. I, I would just add one point about the the link between capability and policy. We assume this very rational policy process where, you know, the policy part comes first, like this strategic uh, review that we're doing now. And out of that comes capability. So we decide, you know, here's what we want to do, and this is the kit we'll need to do it. But we should also be alive to the danger, actually, that once you have capabilities, those drive policy. So my fear about the nuclear-powered submarines, for instance is that once you have them, it makes it incredibly difficult to say no to the United States when the balloon goes up in a Taiwan contingency, for instance, or or any kind of military conflict over China. If you don't have the capability, if you only have short-range submarines designed specifically to protect the approaches uh, to the Australian landmass, then of course that question never arises. The Americans will never ask you because you don't have the capability anyway.
3: Geraldine, mm. I might comment on the on the conventional versus nuclear submarine. One of the reasons a submarine acquisition for Australia has always been so difficult is nobody builds conventional submarines with the expectation of operating over the sort of ranges that, that we do. So Collins was had to be an extended, uh, like a stretched version of a of a Swedish design, and we put enormous, um, you know, risk into that design. And so um, it's always been a, a problematic approach. Um, the, the, the nuclear submarine, I think, is the right answer, but it's come a decade too late. And that's, again, for policy reasons, it was excluded from from the submission. But if we assume we want um, submarines to stay below the surface because uh, as soon as they... Uh, emerge to the surface and conventional submarines need to recharge their batteries by running diesel engines, which have to breathe uh, the oxygen, as soon as they emerge, they become detectable. And once you know a submarine's uh, start point, you've got a rough idea of where it might be over a certain amount of time. Nuclear submarines can stay down for three or four months at a time. Now, I wouldn't want to be on that boat for three to four months, um, but I'll leave that to other young people to decide. But um, that does give you a, a level of sort of stealth and ambiguity in a in a discussion with a major power in your region that is difficult to have if they know where all your assets are. Because
0: there are arguments, as you know, Alan Dupont, um, and I noticed in your last um, piece for The Australian, you went through a whole sort of um, uh, list of what was possibly needed. And I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, you actually mentioned (laughs) nuclear-powered submarines, um, (laughs) which I took note of. I thought, ah, what's he sort of saying by omission?
2: First of all, we're not designing or redesigning the Australian Defence Force from scratch here. We have what's called a legacy system. We have the force that we have now, there's only so much you can change about that in three to five years or five to ten years, right? So what we're talking about is the bits that we want to change and we're also talking about how quickly we want things uh, and that will determine partly the priorities we we, we arrive at in terms of funding uh, and and one particular piece of equipment over another, to put it in simple terms, right? So, as I said, if we were just redesigning the whole Defence Force, I mean, we could have a first principles discussion about this and and everybody Mm -hmm. could get on board, right, but we can't. And there's also a political dimension here too. Now, let's let's be honest about this. The fact that three countries have now committed to AUKUS – it's going to be extremely brave of a minister or a new prime minister to say, oh, right, okay, we're, we're sort of scrapping that, right? We, we're, we're just giving that a big bit. So it's going to be very difficult for Miles to do that, for example. So what he's trying to do is find a way to make AUKUS work, um, to make it as efficacious as possible and to see whether there have to be some changes in in the way in which resources are divided up. That is, how do you cut the pie? My argument is, why don't we make the pie bigger so that we can fund all the things that we need rather than having to make all these these compromises? But how
0: long is a piece of string? I mean, you you know, it's 2.11% of GDP now, the defence budget. Um, It's gone up 3.8%. I've got the figures here. But, I mean, how much would you like... Okay, well,
2: so my response to that is I'm not arguing for an increase in the defence budget, you might be surprised. I'm (laughs) arguing to, this is my point about having public-private partnerships. If you actually do this the right way, you don't have to uh, levy the Australian taxpayer with more money for defence. You can actually liberate, as I said, or allow a lot of the private sector money to flow into a lot of this infrastructure, which which is a big part of the cost if you get the actual balance right between them. So, so, to me, that would be a solution to the wicked problem that we've been talking about. So, if you could actually get greater capabilities without having to spend more of the taxpayers' money, wouldn't that be a good outcome?
0: I'll just, might give you very quickly last words. Uh, first to you, Sam Roggeveen. Look,
1: I'm I'm in a slightly odd position in that I think uh, the United States is going to be a diminishing part of our uh, national security future. I also think China is going to be a growing challenge with a very large and modern military. But I also don't think defence spending needs to rise. Uh, I think it needs to change radically. If you believe, as I do, that uh, the first job of the ADF is to defend the Australian continent, and that we are designing a force first and foremost to defend against uh, the possibility of Chinese aggression, then above all, what we need is a force that can uh, sink ships and secure the airspace to our north. That's the force I'd be designing, and Gus is going to hate this, but I don't think we need a particularly large army to do that. Gus?
3: Uh, Sam's articulated one of the options. My, my personal view is, if you're defending from your own territory, you're you, you know you're you've already um, in a difficult position for a trading nation and w- with connections you know to the rest of the world through undersea cables, etc. But but broadly, the argument that Sam's making is the one that we need to have. You know, we need integrated air and missile defence. We need digital command and control systems. We need armed undersea and, and air drones. We need all these things quite quickly. We need to enhance our cyber capability. And so the review that's underway now is is going to have to prioritise some spending and, and programs like the uh, Army infantry fighting vehicle will no doubt come into consideration because unless there is an increase to that funding envelope, um, all of those things have to fit into uh, an existing mm. budget.
0: Okay, this is the first, <laughs> first effort and uh, I very much welcome listeners' responses. Alan DuPont, Gus McLaughlin, Sam Roggeveen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you, Jeremy. My uh, pleasure. Alan DuPont is from the Cognoscenti Group, Gus McLaughlin now consulting with Bondi Partners and Sam Roggeveen from the Lowy Institute and lots and lots of feedback too, um, quite mixed. Some people saying, why on earth are we even here? Why can't we sort of raise our spirits and look beyond others with uh, very interesting p- perspectives on the acquisition of um, particular material? And I note that the Matthew Knott in the nine papers yesterday said the Albanese government now wants Australia to urgently start manufacturing its own missiles. The Defence Minister, Pat Conroy, said the government was working on a plan uh, to um, uh, uh, um, collaborate with the companies like Lockheed Market and Raytheon to develop a sovereign missile manufacturing industry. So look out for that. But as I said, this is our, we will return to this topic and um, please do give us your thoughts. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations. Live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.